once I started putting everything down on a surface, it started to get a little bit quieter for me. And that's when I started meditating. And then after I started meditating, my writing just, I started coming up with ideas for my writing. So those two kind of went hand in hand because I was looking to have a, just somewhere to write. And then when I started meditating, it just made my writing even better. Welcome to Eat the World, a podcast about food. My name is Rob Lewis. I'm a well-traveled eater and a fearless home cook. On my Instagram page, I have a community of people like me, talented home cooks from around the world that make the dishes that they love for their friends, families, and followers. For the 20th episode, my guest is Jamisha Albo. Jamisha is a young woman on the cusp of a great adventure. After years of working for a major supermarket chain, Jamisha has set up her own food shopping service. What is even more remarkable is her journey to this moment. She's a talented writer under the name Adapted Adopted and a prolific poster on Instagram under Jamisha's Kitchen. Please listen to this amazing story. Welcome, Jamisha, to the Ate the World podcast. Hi. Hi. So happy to be here. <laughs> so am I, because this has been almost months, months and months and months in the making. Yes, yes. And then we all got sidetracked for different reasons. You know, I'm so used to that corporate structure where my life is kind of based on somebody else and on somebody else's timing. Um, and now I'm just kind of holding myself accountable. So I definitely uh, just have to learn to be a little bit more proactive is what I learned when you're self-employed. It's part of the learning process. So I want to start with the last article that you wrote for your um, blog. Can you tell people what's the story and it's really your origin story? Yeah, absolutely. So in that story, I just provide a little bit of a glimpse to the life I had before I was adopted. And so my platform on vocal media, Adapting Adopted, is a platform for stories that relate to what I've been through throughout the adoption process over the last 20 years. Um, and so what, whether that has to uh, do like my last story, where I connected being someone who's come from a traumatic environment and showing that despite how traumatic that environment may have been, you can still grow and succeed. And there is still a lot of people in the world who go through really, really traumatic things and never make it out on top. And just learning to really get to know yourself and get to know the kind of support system you need in order to focus on your own personal and professional development. Um, because if you work for a company, somebody might not always see that in you. Or you might not have somebody who's always rooting for you. So yeah, so it just kind of connects my past with uh, where I am now and how I'm proof that you can really overcome something that happened that was so bad to you and really come out on top and, you know, make the most out of your life. And you were so young at the time. Can you tell a little bit more about what happened and, you know, what was the path of getting away from the abuse? I mentioned in the story that you know, I was three years old when I, I left my birth mother's home. And at that age, nobody really expects you to remember 
any of that, you know, what you have been through when you were three to one years old. Um, but when things like that, that happen are so traumatic to you that those memories stick around, right? Memories attached to emotion. And, you know, that was a very emotional time for me. And something that I will say, I'm just, I've carried this into my adult life, but I have always been, um, and sometimes not even in a good way, but a kind of just get up and go person if I don't like something. Um, so at three years old, I was able to make the conscious decision about the environment that I was living in. And I just decided to leave the apartment that my mom lived in. Um, at that time, she was sleeping on the couch. All I knew at the time was that she was always sleeping on the couch. Um, it's very well that she could have struggled with depression, just like, you know, I've been struggling with over the last couple of years. Um, I definitely know she struggled with substance abuse. And there are parts of me that think about those kind of perspectives now as an adult in comparison to, oh, no, this was a bad thing that my mother did. And just kind of, I don't want to say sympathizing with that, but having more of an understanding of the full story that I might not know. When I left, uh, I was picked up by a couple of neighbors that knew my mother. And by the time we got back to her apartment, the police were already there um, and they had taken me away from the apartment. That's when I make the joke in the story about the ice cream, because <laughs> there was a police officer who did ask me if I wanted some ice cream. And I said, yes, vanilla. And and then I never got the ice cream. I, I tried to bring some comedy to it because, again, emotion is attached with memory. And that was something very emotional for me. And now in my adult life, vanilla ice cream is my favorite flavor. Um, so when they took me away, I went to my first foster home. I was out in Hyattsville-ish area of Maryland. And the, the foster mother I had at the time, uh, she has since passed. Uh, she passed quite a few years ago, but she was not able to take care of me. She, she had me and she also had two other boys that she was fostering. They needed a lot of attention and she, she couldn't take care of me in addition to taking care of those two boys. So I was fortunate enough to go to her daughter, who just lived right down the street from her. And my foster mother now, she's in her 70s. Uh, she still lives in the same house that I was grew up in the first couple of years of my post-birth mother life, if you will. And I'm very close with her. I, I see her probably twice, twice a week because I help her out with her daycare. And she's actually one of my clients for my personal grocery shopping business. So I do do grocery shopping for her. You know, I think people say that you learn the most from your experiences by the time you're five. Like by the time you're five years old, that kind of sets the tone for what the rest of your life is going to look like and who you're going to be as a person. And I definitely see that now that I've been spending more time with my foster family um, about like who I am today as a person. And when I go back to them, I see, oh, I think I get that from him. I think I get that from you. I think, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, I was very fortunate to have a really good foster mother who was very um, strong, very authoritative. Um, she has a husband. Uh, they're still married and just celebrated a very, very long time anniversary a couple of days ago. And she also had a brother who's married and their family, too, um, along with a son and two daughters. And all of them I'm still close with and use as a support system when I need it. But they really helped me find my way as like a child and really taught me not to let anybody tell me that I couldn't do something. 
I appreciate them so much for that. They were really good people to be around for the amount of time I got to be around them. So that was only for a couple of years. And then I was adopted in 2001 when I was six years old. The article is so powerful because you, you bring in all the emotions and all the memories that you were experiencing at a time. And I think it is true that most people may not have such foundational strong memories at the age of three because of their life circumstances. The one thing that I, I just stopped while reading the article was the amazing thing is not only did you undergo such a traumatic experience at such a young age, but it's very rare to find someone at that age that's able to use their voice and get agency. And that's something that you did to perhaps even save your life. Yeah, absolutely. That That's something I still don't believe to this day, but I remember very greatly. And my foster mother remembers it even better than I do. Because she, if you, you really think about what a foster mother is supposed to do, you, you're literally supposed to be like a mother to the child that you have until they are able to find a new home. And she has vivid memories of me walking around at night to her bed and me scaring the living daylights out of her because I'm just standing there breathing so heavy, heavily. I, I would scare the living daylights out of her. She would wake up, look at me, ask me what I needed. And I would literally just say, I just wanted to make sure that you were still here. It was like deep, deep, deep trauma that I had at that time um, that I've worked very, very hard to come to terms with and to know and use my voice, not only in that way and be able to say, you know, I'm going to go look for my mother and make, or, or look for the person who's supposed to be taking care of me to make sure they're still there is a really like higher level thing for like a four or five year old <laughs> in the court. Like I, I do remember somebody in this office simply just asking me, do you love your mother? And I, I would say no. And, you know, at the time, I don't know that I could say I had any idea what love is, <laughs> um, but I, I knew enough of what they were asking to just be like, no, I don't, I don't want to be with her anymore. And it wasn't at that time, an emotional experience for me until after I was, after I was adopted, because then the, the trauma of the memories started coming back and then there was nightmares and so on and so forth. And I don't think that my adoptive family were, were quite ready for some of the things that I, I would have to go through later in life um, and dealing with that. So you were adopted at six years old? Yeah, I was adopted at six years old uh, by a Mexican-Italian family. They are phenomenal in terms of um, cooking when I was adopted. A few years later, my parents invited um, my dad's parents, so my grandparents, to um, come live with us here in Maryland. And so my grandfather is Italian and my grandmother's Mexican. So my dad was half Mexican, half Italian. Um, and then on my mom's side, my mom's, my mom's mom was half white, half Mexican. And then her husband was white as well. So my mom's half white, half Mexican. Having my grandparents come live with us is where um, I really started getting a love for food. But it did come at a really weird time because I was just coming from a place where I was food insecure and didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. And so when that happened at such a young age, I dealt with always needing to find food when I was in foster care and touching food and taking food that you know wasn't mine. And then I also carried that into my adopted family doing the same thing simply because 
as a child who went through what I went through, needing my next meal was my biggest priority. The original, I guess, love for food didn't come from a loving standpoint. The love for food didn't come until I started working with my grandparents in the kitchen. And my my grandmother would, uh, th- during the holidays, we would make empanadas and we would make tamales. We would make, you know, rice, beans, um, homemade tortillas uh, on my the Italian side, we would make brajol. My grandpa was always making sauce. Like there was so much culture and cuisine behind my grandparents that um, it's just really just a wealth of knowledge. And actually I got, this is just a side side story. I got my grandmother's recipes or excuse me, my great grandmother's recipes for, for all of those items over the Christmas holiday, just by accident, just going over my grand, grandmother's house saying hello. And then she had copies of those recipes and she made copies for me. And it was the best gift ever because those are things that I can take into my family when I develop one. I really learned to cook through my grandparents and then going into high school. Um, I was taking vocational classes for culinary arts um, and baking and pastries. So that's when I really developed like the techniques of, you know, cooking and using using a knife. And I don't want to say in a professional way, but in a way that's not as scary as <laughs> my grandmother's kitchen. <laughs> she would always tell me this story about how they were just so poor, right? So poor because they had tortillas, rice and beans for for lunches and dinners. And that's really all they ate. And other, other kids maybe got to have like PB and J sandwiches. And I like, it's so funny, the perspective and how it changes over the years, because me thinking about homemade tortillas, rice and beans, like that's my, that's my dream. (laughs) That is my dream. And to, to think that there was a time to, or excuse me, to think there was a time where other kids would make fun of you if you were eating that. Um, it's just crazy how the, the food culture has grown over the years. Through vocational classes during my high school years, I was able to get a certification through the American Culinary Federation as a certified junior culinarian. I go back and I help out that vocational school with the students who are in those same classes. So I get to evaluate ACF um, culinary exams uh, for the, you know, practical part of it when they're cooking in the kitchen. And then I, you know, help with mock interviews and just kind of growth and developmental learnings in the workplace for students who are in the same spot that I was in when I was their age. Entering into this family, you know, you mentioned the story about vanilla ice cream and, and how that that was a powerful food attached to a powerful memory at a specific moment. When you were growing up, what were the foods that became comfort foods if you got those types of things from that experience? It would definitely be like ice cream was big for me. Apple pie and ice cream were huge. I really loved it when my grandmother and I made chili beans. So just this big pot of chili. Um, That was a huge comfort food for me. Um, What else? PB&J sandwiches. I don't know why. I just loved PB&J sandwiches. To this day, I still have a huge love for them. <laughs> I was actually just thinking a couple of days ago how to make a like a gourmet PB&J sandwich to maybe, you know, do a post or a story on Instagram with. Uh, definitely sauce. Sauce, spaghetti, pasta, that sort of thing. Very comforting for me. So so a lot of carbs, I would say. A lot of, a lot of carbs. <laughs> 
Did you go to a special vocational high school or was it a program within the normal high school track? It was a program inside of the county, but outside of the school. I was going to school and doing all of the traditional courses that the high school students do throughout my four years. In addition to getting those learnings, I was spending half days at another vocational school uh, that was maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes away from my home high school. This was in Severn. So did you grow up around the Severn area? I did, yes. So I grew up um, in a town called Crofton. Okay. So it's it's right outside of Severn, maybe 15 minutes away. And the town that you grew up in, I mean, was it predominantly white or what was what was the environment that post adopted that you ended up, you know, going into? Yeah, so that's actually it's not a loaded question, but simply put, uh, the town of Crofton actually just took gates down last year or maybe the year before. Um, but these gates back in the day resembled uh, they're they're just they were tall white gates that resembled a sign that minorities were not allowed in Crofton. So it was a sundown town. Yes. And I did not actually learn that until last year. Um, So that's why I don't know the exact timeline if the, if I, if I just learned it last year and the gates were already down Um, because I've been out of the town just in and out living in a couple different towns for the last few years. Uh, So yeah, no, I, I found that out last year and that was, actually right in line with my experience in living in Crofton. Well, that was the thing. It is a loaded question because it really, you know, I really wanted to know without being so blunt about it, like, how did you fit into your new world? Yeah, I, I didn't. <laughs> and that's, that, that's kind of a hard thing because I have just over, overcome trying to be somebody that I'm not. And so that person is, you know, somebody with lighter skin. I'm, I'm not that person. My entire life always felt less than because I didn't have lighter skin. Um, and that just stems from living in a family that has lighter skin and living in a town that has even lighter skin <laughs> and just having memories of, I have memories of my mom. Uh, you know, I, I had a variety of friends growing up, didn't matter what color they were, but I always remember her not liking my my friends that had darker skin. And you know, that that kind of set the tone for the people that I chose to be friends with later in life. And again, up until the last few years that it's always kind of set the tone. And I, I remember her saying things to me like, oh, you don't have to be friends with so-and-so just because, you know, she's Black. And at the time, I didn't register that as something that was incorrect. But when I think back on the memories, I just understand more of why it's taken me so long to be comfortable in my own skin. When you say that it shaped who you ultimately spent more time with, did you gravitate towards people with lighter skin or did you reject the notion of what your mom was saying and then go the other way? No, I definitely gravitated toward people with lighter skin. I don't have a lot of African-American friends, even still to this day. That doesn't mean that I don't have a good, solid um, support group of African-American people in my life. But in terms of like very, very close friends, I don't have a lot of them. So not only did I lose the experience of, I I won't say lose the experience, but I didn't have the experience of growing up in an African-American family. And then I didn't even have African-American friends to support me in 
just growing up as a, as a black person, for example, I'll say my hair and knowing how to take care of it and learning how to love my hair and not beating myself up because my hair is not as, you know, tameable or manageable as the people in my family. So I, I, I lost out kind of on those experiences and didn't gain them until um, these last couple of years. When you entered into the workplace, was it just more of the same or was there a shift in consciousness or how, how was that experience like? When I moved into the workplace, I was a very, very hard worker. Just about everybody loved my work ethic, but I'm, I'm not like a, a chipper, smiley person. And there is a stigma with African-American people, especially women, not smiling enough and how other people are intimidated if a Black person doesn't smile, but it doesn't necessarily matter. A person from another race doesn't smile. And I dealt with that a lot, not only in my family, but in the workplace. So in in the workplace, I sometimes would be labeled unapproachable by people who just didn't have a place (laughs) in, in saying so. Because when not to talk myself up, but when you work as hard as I do and when you're in a position where you're constantly throwing product all day, that's not like a smiling position. I'll smile at a customer when they come by if they need something and have a great conversation. But in terms of just getting work done, you know, I'm not I'm not a super smiley person. I started to feel like I had to change who I was as a person, which I I couldn't do because I can't fit can't fix my face or the color of it. Um, so that so that was pretty hard, I think. But I've always worked in a pretty good environment. I, w- I would say with there's been some ups and downs, but overall, um, it, it was a pretty good environment. My biggest issue was with, I would say, customers who didn't understand people who looked like me in managerial roles. That was that was the hardest part, not being appreciated for who you are because you're five foot black and a woman is just, that's, that's a tough thing. Do you think things got better or worse when COVID hit? I I do not know. I don't want to say worse, but I, I think even the nicest of the nice people were, were so miserable. And I, I can't say that things got worse because the country was scared. You know, we, the fact that There were literally lines like a maze in and out of the grocery aisles. And, you know, my department at the time I was running a dairy department, (laughs) God forbid. So, you know, all of the milk that I had was nowhere to be found. Like there was just no milk all of the time. And it was the craziest thing because people would still ask me for milk. It was almost like people treated you like you were lying to them, like you were hiding the product somewhere. And that there was no way you could be out of milk or out of meat and chicken or out of paper towels and toilet paper. That was the attitude. Like, unfortunately, no, we don't have anything. But they also could visibly see very large gaps of space that were completely empty. But even seeing that, it was still this disbelief that we were hiding things in the back. I had never had so many people walk into my coolers looking for things that were were empty. And that's not a safe thing. We had people climbing the racks of the, you know, back room. Like it was, it was a situation where people really didn't believe us. And they <laughs> essentially thought that those service workers were were lying to them. And, and that wasn't the case. So to answer the question, yes, things got worse, but it got, things got worse for everybody. 
it's a collective sapping of our national resilience and just our mental energy. It was awful. Absolutely. The crazy thing is yesterday I ended up having to go to a whole bunch of supermarkets because, you know, you still have varied, varied amounts of availability of certain SKUs. Yeah. And I think what set me off was, and when I say set me off, I really mean just, I looked and I said, okay, I'm not going to buy that. It wasn't like a full scale set off. The thing that was remarkable was I ended up going to Costco because I was looking for baby back ribs, slabs of baby back ribs. But the prices were about twice as what they would have been a year ago. I thought, okay, this is Costco. It really shouldn't be this high. So then I went to one other supermarket who had it on sale. Great. They had the sale price, but they didn't have the product. Then I had to go to a third supermarket, which had the product at a price which was reasonable, still more expensive than last year. What should have been a 15-minute trip turns into an hour and a half. And it is, it's frustrating. It's not effortless. It's, you know, it expends your energy. Absolutely. And you still see that, especially for the um, grocery shoppers, like the the ones who are out, like myself, shopping for other people um, and the amount of substitutions that customers need because there, there's just not as much variety available as there once was. And specifically to you trying to buy ribs, this time last year, the, meat, the shortage of meat was insane. So now they're trying to make up for that. The way you do that is by jacking the price up because no matter what, you're still going to buy ribs because it's, it's June. It's July, it's August. Like it, it doesn't matter what the price of ribs is. <laughs> People are going to still buy ribs. And that that's how a business operates. That's how you make up for the, the essential losses that you, you went through last year. I don't know that I foresee that getting better anytime soon, especially with like this new whatever strain and all the news behind that and whatever is going to come in the coming months. Um, I just know that I'll, I'll be staying here, staying put and <laughs> going the places I want to go and who, who knows what's to come. So all of these experiences up to date has led to what I think for you a pretty momentous thing, which is your decision to say, I'm setting up on my own. I'm going to do this. What was the start of the process? And was there like this cascade where you said, okay, this is it. This is my moment. No, there's not this grand story behind it. I started door dashing in October of 2020. Started doing that to just get some extra income. I was living alone in an apartment that I could not afford to live alone in. And it was tough because it was easy money. But I was so just mentally drained that I could barely even do that. And over time, I started taking what I had done with DoorDash and kind of breaking down the hourly rate that I was making doing that at the times that I did. And something that happened here in 2021 was just that thought process of, okay, I can actually make the same salary that I'm making now with not even like a third of the stress. Should I do it? What does it look like? What would it look like if I quit my career job to go deliver food? And then I started getting into this space where it didn't matter what anyone thought, because at the end of the day, it's my, my money, right? And it's, it's my life. And I just decided that I wanted better and I was going to get better through just taking a complete step back in my life 
doing something that was still going to make me the income that I was already making and then some, and then from there figuring out what it is that I was going to do. I woke up on a Thursday morning while I had taken, I think I had requested a 10 or 11 day vacation. My intention was not to put in my two weeks during that when I went on vacation, but I took the vacation to earn extra money door dashing. And I woke up one morning and I decided that I can't ever again take a vacation to do something else that's going to make me more money. And that day I was just like, okay, I think I'm going to put in my notice. And then I said, okay, when? And I was either going to put it in that day, wait till I get back from vacation. And I was in the process of being transferred to another store or I was going to wait until I get to that store. And out of those three options, I wasn't going to wait until I go somewhere else. I wasn't going to wait if I was going to do it to do it when I come back. So that day was just perfect for me. And I'm not the person who pulls the trigger that quickly. It was really something I had thought about for a long time. Wasn't my intention when I went on vacation, but I woke up, uh, got ready to go start door dashing. And I was like, I I took a vacation. I took paid vacation to do something else that was going to make me more money. I should just do this 40 hours a week. I'm looking at your website and you're not using DoorDash as a platform. You've chosen another I platform. I do DoorDash, but through grocery delivery, I use the Dumpling app. However, there yes. are grocery orders that come through DoorDash because DoorDash partners with, um, I think, a couple of grocery and retail stores. So if I end up going to retail stores um, through DoorDash, sometimes I'll choose them, but I like to try to stick to food delivery only with DoorDash. And then, you know, I feel like it seems like I've been doing the personal shopper thing for such a long time now, but it's only been a few weeks. Um, so I'm still in the process of really building a silent, not silent, uh, strong clientele for that business. You know, it, it's a slow process, but I'm, I'm, it's just something I'm like so excited about. And that idea, I didn't run into that opportunity until seven days after my last day at Wegmans. It was not something that I knew I was going to end up wanting to do. But when I saw the opportunity, I could see the vision for what I could do for the community um, using that platform to build a personal grocery shopper business. And then from there, things have kind of just fallen into my lap almost on a day to day basis. Like I I wake up and I'm not sure what I'm going to get, but I always end up getting something something good. So, uh, yeah, so that personal grocery shopper business idea didn't come until after I was already separated with Wegmans. With the Dumpling app, are they providing clients and orders for you to fulfill or are you able to build your clients independently? No, so it's just me. So um, anybody who downloads the Dumpling app is able to search their area for personal grocery shoppers. So that is one way that people can do it. But since Dumpling is not a very well-known application, it's not, it's not like I have people signing up for me to deliver groceries for them all the time. It's really about the legwork that I put into my advertising and um, into my networking throughout the community that gets me um, leads to where I can convert them into actual clients. And then you're using the Dumpling app to pre-fund the groceries and then buy things and then they're handling the working capital of everything and the payment side? I have a business card with Dumpling. And so that's a preloaded card that up to a certain dollar amount I'm able to use when that client places an order. Awesome. 
that that individual has all of their information uploaded on their end about their payment information. Um, and then once I've uploaded their receipt and sent it to him or her or they, um, that is when uh, they'll charge the person's part. From what you've seen so far, where do you see this taking you and where do you see your community growing? <laughs> I'm very happy that you asked that because post-2020, the service of grocery delivery is still needed. And not so much because people are scared to go out. It's, it's not about that anymore. It's about the convenience factor that 2020 has brought to everyone's attention and then realizing how they could use it to gain more time to do the things that they love and spend time with the people that they want to be with. That's what I see when I think about my service. I don't see it as just me delivering somebody groceries because I think it could, you know, because they want to order groceries and I don't want to do Instacart um, and work for somebody else. Like, that's not what it is. It's people that I know personally that physically aren't able to go grocery shopping. And because of that, probably also can't afford the high fees of other apps that they might be already using. It's benefiting people who are working from home, but really can't step away um, from their, you know, work at home to, you know, go grocery shopping, um, nor do they want to be inside of a grocery store when um, there's still some uncertainty lingering around, you know, whatever new strains come, come about. Uh, it's really, it's, it's bigger than just getting groceries and taking it to somebody. It's supposed to be a service that you should feel a sense of luxury to have without paying the luxurious price for. Well, the biggest thing, I mean, and this is, once again, I'm an outsider evaluating your life, right? Which is always, you know, fraught with, with, with a lot of different things that you bring to the table. But up to this point, all the communities that you've been participating in have been you in someone else's community in you know, the family that you grew up in, in the vocational school, in the company you work with. How does Jamisha fit into that community? I don't. And this is really different because you are building your community of people that you feel that you can help and you can relate yeah. to. And it's changed a lot for you. I mean, it's changed the types of posts you've given on Instagram, the voice that you've, you've used in terms of writing your story. Yeah. I mean, it's really a profound shift in terms of your voice. Absolutely. So that's the biggest thing I would say is being able to find who I was and being comfortable showing people on social media who that person was. I have been... I mean, I have a headband on now, but since February, I have been in the style of an Afro. <laughs> and I think February 1st was the first day that I decided to do it. And I decided to do it for Black History Month. But I told my coworkers around me, um, and that was one of those things where it was like, I'm going to do this in the workplace and people are going to maybe crap themselves. But this is my choice. <laughs> I can wear an Afro if I want to wear an Afro. Um, so that was huge for me in terms of being more comfortable in my own skin and in my own hair. But I did tell people, I was like, if you see me with an Afro after Black History Month, do not ask me any questions. And you're, you're out there with it because, you know, three days ago, you posted a beautiful picture of your face and, and your head in its glory. Yes. yes. But then yes. back in August of 17, it almost felt like you had either straight hair or, or 
something yeah. that that wasn't that's different than what you're presenting yeah, now. Absolutely. So yeah, my hair right now, I had to go through this process where growing up, I had very long hair, but I also had mistreatment of my hair just because I wasn't knowledgeable on how to take care of it. And neither were the people that I was surrounded by. Um, so eventually a lot of my hair fell out um, through chemical treatments, through just misproper scarf wearing, um, there, there were a lot of things that factored into me not having really great hair in terms of health and in terms of like style. That was a very self-conscious thing for me because I didn't have straight hair that, you know, again, um, just kind of flowed like everybody else's did. I, I had to put in a lot of work to get my hair to look nice. And it was just, it was too much effort. And then the one thing I did like was wearing braids. Um, and I always felt my most confident when I wore braids, but I didn't always have money for braids. Braids are a very tedious process and they cost a lot of money. And I was, you know, somebody who at 19, I was already living with roommates and, you know, just paying my own bills, that sort of thing. To be able to, in February, decide that I was going to wear that style and cut my hair to things that I, I never would have done before. Um, very liberating experience because after that, I started becoming more myself and I had never been that person before. So to now, uh, that was actually the first picture I've ever posted with that hairstyle. So that was, um, I posted it on Instagram, which I try to use Instagram mainly for food. Um, but every once in a while, you know, hey, this is what I look like now. Uh, but I also posted it on Facebook where I have a bigger following. Um, and people were really excited about it. it. It was the first time a lot of people had seen it. Unless you see me on a regular basis, nobody had really known. Well, the whole expression. I mean, your face looks relaxed and gorgeous and fantastic. Yeah. So it's like you're at peace with everything about you. Everything, Yeah. So have you been cooking more? I have been cooking more. It's ridiculous. I have been cooking way more because I have the time now. And you mentioned that, you know, my, my social media has kind of changed over the years and developed into who I am now. And I love that person. And I have the time now to cook. I have the time now to explore new restaurants. I have the time now to write. Um, I have to have the time now to figure out how I'm going to start a podcast in September. You know, I just have more time for the things that I love that don't necessarily make me money. And that is a very awesome experience, not having to focus on money, money, money at all hours of the day. With your early posts on Instagram, a lot of the food picks are things that you're eating at restaurants and experiences that you're having outside the home. But recently, it's more food that you're making for yourself inside the home. I'm so curious. You asked, you know, when we decided, okay, let's do this podcast together. I said, please suggest something that we can cook together. And you said Spanish rice, pinto beans, and homemade tortillas. And I thought, okay, I'm doing this. Tell me about that recipe and why... Why was this the right recipe for me to get in your world? It's funny that you say that or bring that up because I actually forgot that that's what I told you to cook just because I wasn't thinking about it in this immediate moment. But rice and beans and a tortilla like that, <laughs> the fact that I'll go back to it, the fact that people at one point in time, Hispanic people were made fun of 
for eating that meal. That is something that I cherish so much. Um, I love rice and beans, a little bit of cheese and a tortilla. Like that is a meal that I could eat every day for the rest of my life. Um, so when I chose that and the chorizo too, you know, it's just a very, very cheap and affordable meal that has so much flavor. You can do so much with rice. You can do so much with beans. Um, the tortilla, having a homemade tortilla, there's nothing like it. And that's the easiest thing to make, right? Like I've been cooking more now because I've been back at my mom's for the last month. It's, it's funny in a sense, but they don't have a, a whole concept of how much food is in the house. And so I'll make these things like the waffles. There, there's been a waffle maker, I think, in the pantry of their home for, for years that I've seen just up there. And on Father's Day, I just decided that I was going to take the waffle maker and open it and then take the pancake mix that was in the pantry and make waffles. So it, it's, it's things that, you know, even the, they're, they're so busy with work that they don't always have time to figure out how to construct a meal. It's more for the convenience. So I have been trying to as well um, just cook a little bit more so they have something different to eat. Um, and something a little bit, you know, sustainable during the day that'll provide them with the energy to get through their work day. And so I'll cook lunch for them. I made, you know, vegan tacos for them. I think a few weeks back, uh, the waffles were for me and my little brother, uh, just to make sure he had fresh waffles, uh, over pop tarts in the fridge to toast throughout the week. Well, the waffle recipe was inspired because I I felt that it was, you know, on one spectrum, you have, you know, expensive frozen eggos. <laughs> on, and then on the other spectrum, you've got, you know, flour, baking powder, you know, and milk and eggs. And this was this was a great hack in the middle where you've got a waffle mix or a pancake mix, but you've added frozen organic blueberries and you've added honey to the mix and you, you've added a, diff- a few things, but you haven't made it less convenient. No. The hard stuff, let someone else deal with. The step it up to the next level stuff, that's all on you. Absolutely. I That recipe was mind-blowing because I was just looking at my pantry and there's been this cookie mix in there for, for a long time. And I'm just trying to see what I can do with all the food that's in the pantry and the free, freezers. And I was like, I could probably just mix the two. And so I did. I didn't even add eggs or olive oil. I think it called for... I just added um, I just added vanilla almond milk to that mixture, stirred it up and used that. I was confident enough in myself to know that it was going to come out good. And I know the egg has a purpose. I know traditional milk and oil, they have a purpose for the pancakes or excuse me, for the waffles. Uh, but for this, I didn't feel the need to add all those extra ingredients, especially because when I cook for... Um, my mother, she tries to keep a very plant-based diet. She'll have eggs, uh, but if I don't have to add an egg into something, I, I just choose not to. And I choose to save the egg for something else. The waffles came out amazing without eggs, without without butter. You know, the cookie recipe calls for a whole stick of butter. So it's also something that I've been able to make that doesn't have to be extremely unhealthy just by eliminating a couple of those ingredients, Right. So I'm not saying it's the best breakfast for your health in the world, but eliminating some of those ingredients makes it just a little bit better, even with the blueberries. So the blueberries I didn't add into the waffle mixture, 
but I cooked them down, reduced them, added honey, and that was it. Uh, And a little bit of cornstarch as well. It wasn't this overpoweringly sweet compote of blueberries. It was just sweet enough. There was no extra sugar in it aside from a couple tablespoons of honey. And blueberries themselves, because they're picked at peak of perfection every time, they already have enough sweetness in them that you don't need that extra sugar. And so it's, you know, my cooking is starting to be about what can I eliminate that traditionally we would add into our food, i.e. sugar and salt? Um, What can I substitute? Is there anything I can get rid of just to make this taste the same, but just be a little bit better for for the body? Yeah, it's it's really all about smarts. So you yeah. could have had like a, a canned blueberry pie filling, which is effectively what yeah. you made, but you wouldn't have been able to control the sugar. The blueberries wouldn't have been fresh and they would have been sitting in a preservative in a can for however long. So with the yeah. individually quick frozen blueberries plus the cornstarch and the honey, it's not that hard. I mean, they break apart so easy. So, and it looks absolutely gorgeous. Yes, it was a gorgeous presentation and and the flavor. It was just amazing to be able to taste the actual blueberries. And I remember on Father's Day when I did it, it was more of a mixed, it was a mixed berry compote. And I put some maple syrup on the table in case anybody wanted it, but nobody needed it um, just because all of the flavors just went together so well. But yes, you're absolutely right. And in the instance where, you know, somebody decides to use a blueberry pie filling, things like that. I said this to somebody a couple of days ago, things like that, that have so much sugar in them don't taste as sweet as they should. <laughs> and it's a mind blowing thing. Like my blueberry compote that I made with frozen blueberries, cornstarch and honey was a better flavor and a better sweet than a canned pie filling. Like I would use that compote as a pie filling any, any day over a store bought pie filling. And it's almost like, what is all the sugar for? If it doesn't even really like taste all that good. I feel that way about pop tarts too. I always felt growing up that I was just not doing right. Cause I was expecting like an oozy middle. And in fact, it's just, you know, colored sugar. And I love pop tarts growing up and I've had a pop tart recently. And I was just like, this isn't all that great. So the last question has to be about your writing because it is, it's so powerful and and so beautiful. And I would encourage everybody, you have to go, I'll include the link in my write-up so that people can see your writing. Was this something that you were doing for yourself throughout your life? And then you've decided to share with the rest of us and how did it come to be and what's next for your writing? My writing came because I started journaling. And I started journaling, I want to say in December, maybe of 2020. And journaling for me at the time was just putting my feelings into my notes on my phone. But that was a way for me to get out everything that was in my head onto a platform or a surface. Because I was drive, I was literally driving myself insane, not only with the battles of my mental health, but I was always getting really, really awesome ideas about not only to do in my personal life, but to do at work. And so I was always having these jumbled thoughts at all hours of the day, and I could hardly sleep. Once I started putting everything down on a surface, it started to get a little bit quieter for me. And that's when I started meditating. And then 
after I started meditating, my writing just, I started coming up with ideas for my writing. So those two kind of went hand in hand because I was looking to have a, just somewhere to write. And then when I started meditating, it just made my writing even better. Um, Because while in meditation, I was just coming up with, oh, I could write about that. I could write about that. After that, I found vocal media. It was an advertisement on Instagram, maybe, and it was only a $10 a month subscription. And it allowed everybody who was anybody to write something and post it. There was a lot of good things that I was writing that I wanted to share with people. I started sharing it on the vocal media platform first, but I wasn't sharing it on social media. And I wanted to reach a point in my life where I was comfortable enough sharing those stories on my social media platform. So I, I, when I was able to share my initial story about workplace weed, uh, which I just thought was a hilarious title, <laughs> that was, that was a really big step for me because I, that was not a story that I would have been able to share um, while still in that previous career field. These stories are so personal that I can completely see why you needed to find a home for you um, that's safe yeah. to be able to access these stories and feel comfortable, you know, presenting it to the world on your terms. Right. So I can definitely see why, you know, it's after you've set up your own business and it's it part and parcel to establishing who you are and what your values are, mm-hmm. because, you know, I think, you know, you throw that out to the universe and hopefully the universe replies <laughs> with lots of people that share your values or are sympathetic or empathetic to your Mm -hmm. values that potentially could be people that you could help with your services. Yeah. And so it's funny you say that because when somebody starts their business, the thought is that they want the whole world to see it. And that's not the case with me. I want to help a very small percentage of the community. And that's the community that I live in and that surrounds me. I don't want the whole world to know about me. Um, And that is simply because there are too many opinions for, there are too many, yes, there are too many opinions for, I guess, just in the mass media world. Like I I don't want to be famous. I, I, I want to be famous in the community that loves me. And that's the only thing that I, I want. And I say that because I shared that initial story, Workplace Weed, I shared that publicly and I advertised it um, just as a diversity talk. And as much as there were people who loved the story and loved the perspective, there were even more people who didn't read the story and still had an opinion that didn't align with what the story was about. And that's perfect. The, the story itself I mean, the workplace weed story, the overview of it is what happens when decent people with very different worldviews have an event which have very different consequences for different people, depending on your opinion. Mm-hmm. And the the tragedy of the story is that at the beginning, if everyone had a better idea what was going on in the other person's life, this would be a non-story. The event wouldn't have happened. But what what makes it even more perfect is that mm-hmm. the opinions being shared by people who haven't even read the story is a meta theme of the story itself. People who don't know what you're going through 
are doing things that don't they don't understand what the consequences are Absolutely. and people who are just giving you nonsense and opinion without doing the work it's the same thing Do you want to know how that connects to the the latest story yeah of course i, I do. wrote the latest story for two reasons reason number one was because a friend of mine read the first story and said, I love your perspective and I want to know your perspective about how we implement growth to everybody in the workplace. And it took me a little bit of time to wrap my head around exactly what I was going to talk about. But then while in the process of sharing the other story, somebody who didn't read it commented and talked about how they were tired of unqualified people who were diverse getting positions that they didn't deserve. So that is where I tied it into the latest story. And that kind of fueled, I don't want to say my anger, but I am much better at writing when I'm a little bit pissed off or sad about something or even extremely happy about something. Like if I have an extreme emotion, I know that's the time to write um, because I come up with really good content. And that comment about seeing unqualified, diverse people getting roles that they shouldn't be in. Just, it really set me off because that's not actually perspective. The perspective is that there are more people in the world giving diverse people opportunities. And some people don't like that because they think they're the you know head honcho or they think they're better than so-and-so. And that's why it was extremely important for me to not deny that that happens because I see that perspective, but it, it's much more, it's much deeper than that. It's some, it's people giving more opportunity to, to diverse individuals to gain these learnings. So that's why in the story I say, you know, for the workplace, don't give diverse people positions outright. Let them get the opportunity to learn and grow and see if that position is something that they want to do. That way they know and have the knowledge and are qualified for the position before you've thrown them into the fire and essentially set them up to fail if you've just given that person the position for the color of their skin. Jamisha, I want to thank you. This has been, I think, my best podcast yet because mm -hmm. your story is great. And not only is your story great, the way you tell your story, especially through your writing, is so powerful. You know, I can't wait to hear what happens next with your business. And I really can't wait to hear what happens next with your life and how you share that through your writing. Yes, I have. Uh, I'm always up to something. So uh, there, there is things in place that you will, you will see soon that we can talk more about at another time. But you know, every week it's something new with me. So I don't know what I'm going to write about next, but I do, I do leave um, ideas open. So if you, if you want to see a perspective on something, just shoot me a message and, you know, I can formulate something. That is amazing. Once again, Jamisha, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for your time.